Have you ever had a friend who lies to you all the time? Other than me, of course. I'm not talking about the childhood friend who told you unconvincing lies here. The kid who told you he owned seven Nintendos and his dad was a spy. A convincing friend who you nonetheless know is never quite telling you the entire truth. There's a sense when speaking to them that their words will somehow trickle into your spine and fill you up with fakery. The type of person whose untruths seem to twist the world around them in a way both suffocating and comfortable. Every sentence seems to end in an ellipsis, and you know you're being manipulated, but you're drawn to them anyway, since they're always saying something you want to hear. I had a friend like that. Or at least, I think I did. I haven't seen them in months. Not since the murders started. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. My friend's name is Flick. I met them at a party in a recording studio in North London last year. I'd been invited through a different friend, but I was standing by myself when they first approached. Flick is a sort of wispy, androgynous type, but with the monochrome severity of high fashion, all button-downs and asymmetry. Everything about them is angular, and looking them in the eye feels like a challenge, as their cheekbones drive your gaze in circles around their face searching for softness upon which to gain purchase, and finding none. They've cultivated an unnerving coldness in their appearance, which is ironic because she's a deeply warm person, with an easy laugh and an emotional generosity which draws you into his orbit at dangerous speed. I should say up front that I'm not romantically attracted to Flick, despite what the description I just gave might suggest. The point I'm trying to convey is that Flick is an attractive person, a person with a sense of gravity to them, with a wide group of friends whose presence seems to transform the space they're in. A person with fascination. I was hovering near a subwoofer in one of the myriad rehearsal rooms in the Rat Run warehouse space, enjoying the dull thumping of the bass spilling out into a dozen or so people sipping tins of warm lager. I don't want to make this party sound cooler than it was, It's not a particularly auspicious studio, since it mostly caters to local bands and the type of peripheral punk that plays in pubs outside of the city's cultural centres. Nonetheless, I felt out of place. A deeply boring guy in a crowd of people who were chasing their dreams. Flick isn't the type to introduce themselves. She just glowed over and started talking. And I felt the vertigo start to rise up in my ears. Flick told me that they work in music publishing for Jolly West Records. He's in charge of up-and-coming acts, what they used to call A&R, although it's a completely different business to how it was in the 80s and 90s. It used to be that A&R meant finding unsigned acts and championing them to the suits in charge, and it attracted a lot of sleazy types who get off on power, looking to suck the blood out of young artists. Nowadays, Flick told me, 
It's much more about working with a band or musician to get their social media voice perfected so they go viral organically or close to. You may have already picked up on it, but Flick uses a variety of different pronouns. She, he, they, a couple of others. I know that some people do this to express the fluidity of their own identity or to make a political statement about gender, but I've genuinely come to believe Flick does it as a sort of queer psychic terrorism. She wants you slightly off guard, the referent disrupted mid-sentence, a binaural self sliding back and forth around your headphones like an uneven pair of oscillating sine waves. Again, I can't help but respect it. Everything they do feels a little evil and a little intriguing. Flick's opening gambit, after sauntering across the room, was to ask me how I felt about hypnosis. The principles of hypnotic suggestion are deceptively simple, despite all the stage magic and smoke and mirrors associated with them. It's not so much mind control as it is a series of vocal techniques designed to foster compliance. The first trick is to embed a feeling within a particular sound, sticking emotion to a rhythmic association that you repeat throughout the process. You have to do this gradually, a sentence here and there, a vocal tick that you pause on whenever you hit it. The emotion itself should lull the listener somewhat, but also stick to the inside of their head, making them aware of it only gradually. You're using the sound of your voice as a weapon, working shapes and bits into the experience of listening until it becomes part of the tick 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 of speech that you're hearing and you perhaps don't even realise it. It's the poetry of allowing yourself to be lulled, and if done correctly, the listener will begin to long for it as something familiar, as you cease to use it quite so much. This discomfort builds dependence, trust between listener and hypnotist, and makes a subject pliant to what comes next. They have to be well equipped for that sound to stick, well equipped for that stick to hit the click to trick to tick to tick. Are you feeling uncomfortable yet? It's going to get worse. Flick told me that she'd recently signed an act who made use of hypnotic suggestion in their work. This isn't necessarily a new idea. Almost all music is a form of hypnotism, if you think about it, designed to make you dance or cry or fall asleep or buy Christmas decorations. I remember listening to Boards of Canada when I was a teenager, losing myself in the repeating rhythms and delicate subliminal messages buried under layers of tape fuzz. This isn't new. There's something different about this group, though. They're called The Stick, and they've been playing venues from time to time for the past five years. They never get booked twice, though, for reasons that will become clear. Flick just happened to walk into one of their gigs in the basement of a corner pub near Shepherd's Bush, where they were playing between a pop-punk band and a different pop-punk band. The Stick make noise. Harsh, abrasive noise, without beats or consistent patterns, just oscillation and fuzz. They're not the first artists to do this, of course, but they push it in some pretty distinct directions. Flick told me they build their own synthesizers, which include antenna and receivers for random radio signals and 
underground reverberations from contact mics mounted on the floor at each venue. The vibes were good at the Shepherd's Bush pub after the first pop-punk band finished their set. Then, the stick took the stage. Three gangly guys in homemade animal masks, awkwardly lugging a dozen or so synthesizers onto the bricks and plywood platform. A hushed feedback pop as they plugged in an aux cable, and then... Silence. Twenty minutes later, three fights had broken out and a large fire had started in the toilets. They had to evacuate the venue. The band was smuggled out the back under a sheet to protect them from missiles thrown by the crowd. Flick said they'd never heard anything like it. Something about that group just drove everyone who heard it completely feral. One of the bartenders wasn't wearing their earplugs and they'd grabbed the baseball bat out from under the bar and started wailing on a different customer. Police were called, but when they finally arrived, uh, about an hour later, as usual, nobody had any memory of what had happened, just injuries and smoke damage. Flick had leapt into their car after escaping through the same exit. They'd lost a couple of pieces of equipment at that gig, not the first time apparently, and as they sped off into the night, Flick offered them a contract on the spot. Anything that primal, that destructive, you don't see that more than once in a lifetime. I've not had the pleasure of listening to anything by the stick yet. They hadn't allowed anyone to record them up to that point, but Flick and Jolly West Records were hoping to change that. To really make hypnotism stick, you have to keep going back to the trigger. But you can't make the listener too aware of it. It's good, therefore, to embed a few fake triggers into it especially once the audience is aware they're being hypnotised. The real trick of hypnotism is not complete mind control, that harsh vice grip on the brainstem, but something more subtle, suggesting ideas which the subject believes are completely reasonable, and that they are choosing to do by themselves. If you stop this recording, you'll die immediately. Certain patterns can induce a semi-hypnotised state in the listener, drawing on feelings of both relaxation and fear at the same time. Shakespeare's iambic meter is one type, the steady beat of words in ones and twos, a leading speech that trips straight off the tongue, entrancing listeners to follow suit, and baying even as they know not why the guiding hand of the illusionist reaches to the depths of consciousness. Upon the breaking of the pattern's form, the listener becomes quite overwhelmed, by urge to seek the rhythm once again, they choke, 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 Three guys in the stick drove from Shepherd's Bush back to a nondescript flat above a shop in Hackney, with Flick in tow. They didn't say much. They never took off their masks either. Flick was a little intimidated, but he followed them three flights up the narrow staircase and 
through an extremely cheap-looking plywood front door into an open-plan attic conversion. Inside, the walls were completely covered with dappled soundproofing foam, making the place eerily quiet. If there had been a window at some point, it was no longer visible. The only light was a sickly yellow glow of a dying bulb hanging in the centre of the room. In one corner, a table covered in crusted-over takeaway packets. In the other, a sheet was haphazardly attached to the ceiling, shielding a couple of dirty sleeping bags which lay discarded on the floor. The entire rest of the room was filled with a mess of musical equipment. Racks of analogue synthesizers leaned drunkenly against each other, wires crossing back and forth between them like the centre of a rat king's tail. They flowed out into an eclectic array of speakers, ranging from street scavenged stereos to old PC parts to boomboxes. A stack of early 2000s PC towers was hooked up to a collection of CRTs, which occasionally popped and crackled dimly. The whole place stank, and Flick found herself struggling to inhale as a thick layer of dust and damp coated the inside of their throat. He decided to get the deal done quickly and get out of there. Flick told me that the stick never identified themselves properly, but they provided a phone number that they could be reached on, connected to a landline buried somewhere amongst their equipment, and agreed to a verbal contract for an exclusive release and distribution deal with Jolly West Records. Two weeks and a few phone calls later, invariably met with muted one-word answers if they were answered at all, Flick sent a recording technician over to the flat to press a demo tape. They eagerly awaited the results in the office in Southwark. The technician never made it there, though. On the way back to the office, they stopped their car in the middle of Blackfriars Bridge, took off their shoes and socks, climbed up on the parapet, and threw themselves into the river. There's CCTV footage of them doing it. Flick showed it me, despite my reluctance. They misjudged the jump slightly, slamming one leg into the piling in a way which snaps it roughly into two flailing pieces just before they hit the water at low tide. What struck me, more than anything, is the purposeness with which they hopped over the barrier and stepped over the edge. It's not a moment's hesitation in the way they're moving. This recording technician had two young kids at home, and they jumped off the bridge and sunk into the Thames as though it was the most natural thing in the world. The body was never recovered. On the night we met, Flick was carrying the demo tape from that day. She kept threatening to play it over the PA system like it was all some kind of sick joke. This cursed artifact, coated with a miasma of suffering, and there he was, waving it around like a souvenir. Others had gathered around to hear the story at this point, and Flick was reveling in the attention, drinking in the hype for this hot new thing. It was sick. I have to admit, I really, really wanted to hear that tape. More than anything.
Sticks demo didn't get played that night. Flick took it home. They'd been listening to it obsessively for a week already, telling the story at every party they went to, the inveterate A&R rep. We'd been chatting about it regularly as I tried to wheedle an early copy for myself without tipping my own morbid hand. Then, a week later, Flick disappeared. Stopped answering calls, didn't turn up for work. A friend went over to find her front door open and all his stuff just where they left it. The police were called, and they went through the normal motions, look around briefly, accuse everyone they see of prostitution and or drug dealing, leave without writing anything down. It amounted to nothing. The first body turned up two days later, under a rail bridge in Dalston. A bartender from a nearby pub pulled off the street in the middle of the night and stabbed a dozen times in the face and neck his eyes repeatedly mashed into the sockets with the blunt end of a knife. They found him the next day, although it didn't hit the news for another week. By then, two more corpses had been identified. A teacher in Cricklewood, mutilated and spread across the street while families slept nearby, and a corner shop owner who was found still warm behind the counter by the next customer. And police were looking for a spree killer. CCTV footage showed Flick, his eyes empty but determined, walking in a daze away from a fire in Tottenham that killed seven people in an HMO. Reports indicated that three were dead before the fire was lit. The remaining four had survived the initial knife attack, but were found dead of smoke inhalation in the bathroom. A few days went by, and then news reports came in about an abandoned flat in Hackney being raided by the police after the shop below complained about the stench of death. Five bodies were found stuffed into suitcases in one corner of the room. The soundproofing meant nobody heard a thing. All had been severely mutilated, and they appeared to have been chosen at random, with no clear pattern or connection between the victims. It was just whoever was nearby. Flick still hasn't been caught. It's like they dropped clean off the map, disappeared completely. Even though the murders continued, the news stopped reporting on the bodies abruptly, all at once, like a plug being pulled. You only hear about the disappearances on social media, or through private telegram groups. Corpses suspended from bridges or disemboweled in stairwells. The city shivers silently now, unbidden, unwatched. There are so many of them. I don't think she's working alone anymore. I've started receiving tapes in the mail. I don't know what to do with them. I've not listened to them. I'm too afraid. There's a sound in the back of my mind though. I can't get rid of it. It sticks. It stick. It's sick.
Season 5 of Subterraneans. In the next episode, Hobby Tunnelists, Mole Men, and The Calling. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also sign up on Patreon, where you get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Kieran and Alex. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.